This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was one of the most important figures of the 20th century in the United States. He consolidated and led a peaceful civil rights movement for African Americans from the mid-1950s until his murder in 1968. His 1964 speech, I Have a Dream, is perhaps one of the most important discourses given by any American in the 20th century. And yet he is known to most conservative Reformed folk as a theological liberal, and for that reason has sometimes been regarded with suspicion. In other quarters, however, he is regarded purely as a hero, as St. Martin. Not surprisingly, the truth lies somewhere between those extremes. Joining us today to talk about the Martin Luther King of history, his theology, and his legacy are Micah Edmondson and Dr. Ryan Glomsrud. Ryan is Associate Professor of Historical Theology at Westminster Seminary, California, and a scholar of modern theology. He's co-editor of Justified Modern Reformation Essays on the Doctrine of Justification and a contributor to Always Reform, Essays in Honor of W. Robert Godfrey, and also a contributor to Engaging with Bart, Contemporary Evangelism. Critiques. Micah is from Nashville and is a husband and father of two. He earned his MDiv from Vanderbilt Divinity School and is currently writing his PhD dissertation on Dr. King with a view towards entering the ministry of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. He currently serves Harvest OPC in Grand Rapids as a church planting intern. He's been on campus this week to talk with us about Dr. King and about his place in modern theology. Hi, Micah, and hi, Ryan, and welcome to Office Hours. Hi, Dr. Clark. Good morning. Well, we're here to talk about one of the most important figures, perhaps in all of American history, in modern Western civilization, and certainly in modern American history, Dr. Martin Luther King. But before we get there, Micah, let us get to know you a little bit. You are a candidate or headed towards a PhD. You're working on Dr. King, and you are also involved in an Orthodox Presbyterian congregation in Grand Rapids. You're helping to plant a church. Tell us about your journey toward Reformed theology. Talk us through that journey. Thank you for asking. I was raised in a missionary Baptist church down in Nashville, Tennessee, a traditional black Baptist church. You know, it's interesting. I had some Reformed convictions embedded in me from that context. Uh, I remember that I had a conversation once right out of college in which I was confronted with the issue of the perseverance of the saints. And somehow I I just had it in me that if the Lord has given a person faith and has saved a person, that he will continue to keep that person. So I actually sort of had that within me. Having been raised in the black church tradition gave me a kind of a real orientation toward having a high view of the authority of Scripture, having a high view of the sovereignty of God. African Americans generally tend to be Bible folk. They tend to really have a a high view of the sovereignty of God. Our history of oppression in this country has in some ways providentially fit us to want to seek after a God that is sovereign, that is in control of all of the events of history. And so in that way, I was sort of fit to really embrace and receive form theology. But really where it came to a head was my third semester at Vanderbilt. I had just taken my early church history class, a guy named Patu Burns, who's a, he's a patristic scholar. I was in the parking lot on my way in running an errand for my wife, and I turned on the radio and I heard a person giving a talk on Apollinarianism. 
And I was immediately shocked that any talk on Apollinarianism would just be on the radio. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As are we. So I'd like to know where that, where that radio station is. <laughs> and uh, I've wondered, what is this? Not only was there a talk about Apollinarianism, this person was talking about it with as much depth and sophistication as I had heard the two Burns deal with it at Vanderbilt. Turns out that this guy was R.C. Sproul, and the show was Renewing Your Mind. And I had sat there and listened to the entire show. You know, I'm supposed to be shopping for my wife and here I am out in the parking lot just uh, absolutely fixed on this show. And so after that, I tried to get everything I could get, not only from Ligonier Ministries and R.C. Rolls teaching, but from Reformed Theology. I began to say, hey, look, this is a really seriously intellectual articulation of the faith. When I contacted Ligonier Ministry, they sent me a series called The Cross of Christ, which was Sproul's teaching on the atonement. You know, I'd heard the gospel preached growing up, but I'd never heard it quite like that. And that really was very impactful for me. You know, so I was kind of in in many ways sort of hooked right there. Would you say, Micah, that black churches or Bible churches, or black folk tend to be in that context, very devout and oriented towards scripture, so that when you heard scripture explained, it resonated with you because it was true to scripture. So that in some senses, you were already reformed, Mm You just didn't know it. Right. Absolutely. Because Reformed theology is really just biblical theology. That's what we say. Right. (laughs) You know, the Reformed confessions are really reflecting the system of doctrine taught in Scripture. Any church that's a Bible church is going to have some Reformed themes in there. And if they're really pointing you to Scripture, that foundation was already there. What are some of the challenges of communicating the Reformed confession and theology more broadly within the African-American community? Because... Obviously, if most black Christians in the United States are African Methodist Episcopal or Church of God in Christ or Baptist, Mm -hmm, yeah, or in some places Episcopalian or non-denominational, yeah, exactly. The vast majority are are within the Baptist tradition, and few of them identify as Reformed as you have done. So, when you relate this story within the African American community, what kind of response do you get? And embedded in that is, how do we find more micas? How do we create more micas? If that's the right way to put it, that's a great question. You'd be surprised at the history of Reformed theology within the African American community. Reformed theology is not new to the Black community, and in fact the vast majority of African-American converts to Christianity first happened during the First Great Awakening. So under the preaching of people like George Whitfield, many African slaves came into the faith. And so from the very beginning, African-Americans were Calvinistic. So many black Baptist congregations, even today, will have New Hampshire Declaration as their confession. But this is a part of the black church story that's often been lost. You know, so one thing is to try to just reintroduce black folk to their black church roots and say this is not something that's new to us. Another thing is to be very intentional about making this a Bible thing rather than just a confessional thing. Because black folk, as I say, they're, they're Bible folks, and they need to know that these doctrines are Bible doctrines. It's not merely just tradition, because when we talk about tradition, particularly the tradition that our confessions are connected with, it, they're steeped in a particular culture. So these confessions are European confessions. There's a culture associated with these. They're they're cultural documents. And so what you want to do is show black people that, look, this gospel and these truths are Bible truths that in many ways transcend culture. 
You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California, in order to become reformed. That's exactly right. And, of course, we want to make that same overture to all kinds of groups, not just African Americans. I mean, all evangelicals who don't have a particular connection to the Reformation, or at least a conscious connection, need to understand that the faith that we're confessing, we believe, comes right out of the Word of God, and we believe it because it is taught in Scripture. And here we are in this room, none of us raised Reformed. Ryan comes out of sort of Swedish pietism and evangelicalism. I was raised essentially non-Christian and came to faith through a Southern Baptist congregation. So all of us here have made a journey toward the Reformed confessions. But as you say, African Americans have an additional hurdle, and that's the cultural hurdle. Absolutely. If they could hear Reformed theology in their native tongue, I think that many African Americans would give it a more serious hearing. And it's being done in some places, right? You have Anthony Carter and Anthony Bradley, mm-hmm, yeah. Ken Jones right. and others. But still, it's a fairly short list. We need to make that a much bigger list. Mm-hmm, yeah, absolutely. We need to make that a point of prayer and more aggressive outreach. Many of our churches tend to be in suburban areas rather than urban areas. And when we think about church planting frequently, we're not always thinking about planting in African-American neighborhoods or reaching African-Americans strategically. Yeah, and we ought to be. We really, really ought to be. It's interesting because Reformed theology is really the only theology that is set up to bear the freight of black suffering. Because Reformed theology has a particular emphasis on the sovereignty of God. And it also recognizes not just the sovereign grace of God, but the sovereign covenantal grace of God. And so this idea of covenant it really helps black folk to understand, well, it comes with a recognition of the sort of systemic sins. It's not individualistic. It says, look, it, it, it balances the relationship between the individual and the community setting that they find themselves in. So the idea is that you are coming from one community, this community in, in the world, and you're being integrated into another community, this redemptive community that has graces that is communicated to you through by way of the community. And African-Americans, I think, would really resonate with that. You know, because it's biblical theology, it's, it's set up to deal with the messiness of life, and it really has tremendous resources to deal with the questions, the, the fundamental heart questions that African-Americans have. How does the gospel apply to the black experience of suffering. What does God have to say to that? As a Reformed community, we've got to be thinking hard about those questions, and we've got to apply the resources within the tradition to those questions, rather than denying the legitimacy of those questions. Because some people that just say, well, you know, uh, you black folk haven't really suffered all that much, or, or you, you, have a, you have a victim mentality is what you have, you know. But what we've got to do is say, hey, God has something to say about this suffering that you're going through. Anyone who says that shows a pretty significant lack of understanding of modern history. And we do, as you say, we have confessional resources that speak to this almost explicitly. I think, you know, of the doctrine of providence, which is where we would want to go, and then, you know, think about Heidelberg. Catechism questions 26, 27, and 28 that deal right at the problem of suffering, which were written in the midst of people who were living in cities that were afflicted with a plague where entire cities could be wiped out within a week. So 
these were people who knew something about life being solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Not the exact same kind of suffering, but certainly people who knew what it was like to bury infant children. Infant mortality was very high. If you look at pictures of our theologians in the period, one of my favorites, of course, is Caspar Olivianus. The only authentic drawing of him is of a period in his 30s, and he has a haggard face and a white beard. And he looks ancient, but he wasn't. And there's a reason for that, because life was hard. Part of what you're describing is Reformed theology's deep and realistic understanding of sin. That's right. One of the places where theology starts is understanding our sin, our sinfulness. Maybe that's a good way to start thinking about your work on Dr. King and the kinds of problems, deep social, ethical, moral problems that he was coming up against in his life. So how is it that you came to have an interest in Dr. King as a researcher? I initially thought that I was going to be doing a dissertation on James Cone. I wanted to look at his theology of the atonement. And James Cone just released a book called The Cross and the Lynching Tree, which is his great work on the atonement. And that book traces the history of lynching in America. And I read through that book, and I remember the day I finished the book, I just sat there for like 30 minutes and just stared off into space, just trying to process what I had read. And I realized that this particular issue, the history of lynching in America, was, would be just too painful for me to get through an entire dissertation with. I just couldn't sit with this for the amount of time that it takes to put together a doctoral dissertation. So I told my advisor this, and he told me, well, uh, why don't you look at Martin Luther King Jr.? Well, Cone has a good chapter on Dr. King in that book. And so I, I thought, well, you know, uh, how much else could be written about Martin Luther King Jr.? <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, he's uh, literally a mountain of research on Dr. King. And I started to dig around, and I realized that there's a lot about King that we don't know or that most people don't know. And the reason is because he's been so politicized, and he's such a cultural icon, that people just appropriate him for their own purposes. And when they do that, they oftentimes neglect. They often do it at the expense of what is actually there. Uh, So I started to dig around a little bit more, and I realized that, first of all, there's not a lot of people that are dealing with King as a theologian. A lot of people are dealing with him as as an activist or an ethicist or a preacher, but not seriously as a theologian. That was unfortunate because King uh, got his Ph.D. in philosophical theology from Boston University, and he did his dissertation on Paul Tillich uh, and Henry Nelson Wyman's Doctrine of God. When King was arrested in Birmingham, one of the multiple times he was arrested in Birmingham, the one item that he requested that his wife bring him was a copy of Tillich's Systematics. So King was, he was very theological, but his theology takes the form of preaching, and his theology takes the form of, of his activism, and his theology takes the form of his memoirs and speeches. So if you really want to look at King's theology, you got to gotta look at look at that. And, and you have a lot of folks that just aren't aware of King or engaging with King on that level, seriously, as a theologian. It took Ira Zepp's book, In Search of the Beloved Community, to really began to think about King as a theologian. And that didn't come out till mid-70s. Well, that sort of started this serious engagement with King as a theologian, but that book was what later scholars would call Eurocentric because it really only looked at King's engagement with Rauschenbusch and King's engagement with Edgar Breitman and King's engagement with European sources in Protestant liberalism, rather than also looking seriously at his engagement with the black church tradition, his black church heritage, his black cultural heritage. Could you say something about the significant and old African-American intellectual tradition? I mean, help us 
place King in context so that we don't have to just relate him to Tillich. So my particular research interest is King's theodicy, his approach to suffering. You know, King would often use this phrase, unmerited suffering is redemptive. September 1963, the 16th Avenue Baptist Church was bombed and four young ladies, little girls, were killed in that bombing. And uh, King was asked to do the eulogy. So uh, he comes and he has to make sense of this atrocity. Uh, He's standing over the bodies of three of these young victims, and he preaches the eulogy for the martyred children. And in that, he says that, that God has a way of wringing good out of evil. History has shown time and time again that unmerited suffering is redemptive. And so what he's doing is he's making sense out of God's purposes in this terrible atrocity. And so King didn't come up with this out of nowhere. He represents a long line of communal reflection on black suffering. Going back as far as the earliest Negro spirituals, you had slaves that were singing, uh, didn't my Lord deliver Daniel? Didn't my Lord deliver Daniel? Didn't my Lord deliver Daniel? And why not every man? That's a theodical reflection. That's, that's a reflection of, in light of God's power and goodness and sovereignty. I don't see myself delivered. God delivered Daniel. Why isn't he delivering me? But later on in 1829, you have people like uh, David Walker, who was an abolitionist. He wrote a famous treatise called The Appeal, in which he actually says that black folks, the black slaves that were held in slavery by white Christians would actually be the means that God would use to Christianize the world, that God would use black suffering to bring a message of redemption and hope to the world. So later on, a man named Alexander Crummel picks up this message, and in 1861, he actually sort of reiterates it. Well, anyway, the message goes down from Walker through Crummel through W.B. Du Bois, who was really mentored in many ways by Alexander Crummel. But W.B. Du Bois also reflects this idea in his writings. W.B. Du Bois wrote some of his most famous work in the Atlanta area, like The Souls of Black Folk and The Gift of Black Folk. Well, anyway, W.B. Du Bois is dealing with these issues, and he also has the view that God has providentially fit black people to bear a particular kind of witness to the nation. And so King goes to Morehouse College, and the sociology professor Walter Chivers uses quite a few of Du Bois' works. And so King goes there, and he imbibes this idea. But it's not as though it wasn't already prevalent even in his own home. As early as 1931, Martin King Sr., Daddy King, had said something very similar. So this is one of the great misconceptions about King. People think that sort of King is this sort of isolated figure that just popped up fully formed out of nowhere, when really King represents the apex of a long tradition. He is a representative, a a fruit of 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 a community. We've got to always see him in light of that. Were there tensions in King's theology between being raised in the black church, being the son of a very conservative Baptist preacher who believed the Bible to be the Word of God, and then the European theology that he studied, or American theology, and in the case of Tillich, I guess, sort of covers both American and European theology. How does King negotiate those tensions, and how do you think about the sort of almost dual identity that King had? 
I think he synthesized the Protestant liberalism and European theology that he got in some ways at Morehouse. At Morehouse, he's introduced to Dr. Benjamin Mays and George Kelsey, who very deliberately apply the gospel and theology to blacks' social circumstances. And so that really gave King a great awareness of what could be done in Christian ministry, and that sort of gave him a great confidence that I can actually go into ministry and do something about the social plight of my people. So that made him sort of ripe to receive the Protestant liberalism that he did under uh, George Washington Davis at Crozier Seminary. He gets there and uh, he's really introduced to Walter Rauschenbusch and others, Brightman, and he just eats this stuff up. But he sees it as giving him categories to express the theology that he really received at a formative age from his family and within his community. So later on, King ends up actually co-pastoring Ebenezer Baptist Church with his father, Daddy King. And think about this. King is co-pastoring a church with what he called a fundamentalist. Daddy King was just a Bible preacher, just a conservative Bible preacher, and yet his son is pastoring this church with him because what he sees his son doing is applying Scripture to a social situation that most African Americans really understood. They thought of King as a Christian who was acting in a Christian way. He thought of himself that way. There's one story from, actually he, he relates this in a book he wrote on a, his memoir on a book, Montgomery Bus Boycott, Stride Toward Freedom. You know, King got many, many death threats, but there was one in particular that struck him. King was awakened in the middle of the night by a caller who says that he's going to kill him and he's going to bomb his home. And this really rattled King. So King would receive up to 40 death threats a day. But this one in particular just struck him, and he tried to get over it and tried to get over it, but he just couldn't get back to sleep, and it just bothered him, and he found himself really coming to the end of himself. And he says there in in the kitchen, all alone, um, he goes on his knees and he cries out to God. And he says, I couldn't call on the God of Protestant liberalism. I had to call on the God that my father preached and that my father knew. And later on, he would return to that. In his moments of deepest doubt, he returned to the God of the Bible. So sort of deep in his being, beneath the surface, all all the way down to the foundation, at a foundational level, King had a commitment to the God that his father preached. Tell us a little bit about the vocabulary that he would have inherited from Rauschenbusch and from Tillich. And for the listener who may be wondering, well, I've heard these names, but I don't really know what this means. What does it mean to use the vocabulary of these figures? Can you give us a thumbnail sketch of what Tillich was saying and before him what Rauschenbusch had been saying? Basically, what these figures represent for King, well, at least Rauschenbusch, is a serious application of the Christian message to the social plight of certain people. And so that's why they're appealing for King. Tillich, actually King engaged Tillich not just because Tillich was so appealing to him initially. Remember, he's studying under Edgar Brightman at Boston University. And so what he wants to do is actually engage Tillich in order to more carefully articulate the idea of a personal God. Right? So he was really enamored by this philosophy of personalism. Personalism is a philosophy that says that reality is really, at bottom, personal, and, and, and personality is fundamental to the universe. Personality, that behind all we see, is a personal being, and that really is sort of the highest form of reality. And what this did was it gave King a way to be able to affirm the inherent dignity of black people. 
It gave him categories, philosophical categories, to affirm a personal God that his father had taught him about as a young boy, but also the dignity of these black persons that were being dehumanized. It just gave him categories to express what he sort of already had in his guts growing up. Let me push back a little bit about the social gospel. I mean, within our circles, of course, when you say social gospel, the listener may be thinking to himself or herself, that's an oxymoron, social gospel. I mean, the gospel refers to the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, and societies wax and wane, and we don't think of Rauschenbusch as a particularly faithful expositor of that message. So fill in that picture for us a little bit. So basically, King didn't just swallow Rauschenbusch whole. King's critique of Rauschenbusch is that Rauschenbusch made too much of an identity of temporary social political systems with the kingdom of God. So that's King's critique of Rauschenbusch. But he still sees Rauschenbusch as at least attempting to apply the Christian message to the social situation. And so that was the appeal. King has a concept that is replete in his thought called the beloved community. And the beloved community for King was this community that serves as the ethical norm for all other communities. This eschatological breaking in, uh, this community that is formed by God and gathered by God, that actually serves as a kind of a standard by which every other communal arrangement can be judged. And so what King saw himself doing is actually trying to help to form this community. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced historically the doctrine of justification by faith alone until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically rejected. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888 480 8474, Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. Fill in the picture a little bit more about Tillich, because Tillich is a distinctly modern theologian who is aware of the history of the Christian tradition, in fact, wrote a fine two-volume survey of the history of Christian thought, and yet was not himself an ardent expositor of historic, traditional Christianity. And he was quite in favor, quite hip, quite popular. He's sort of the court theologian of the Kennedy administration. So what were the upsides, what were the downsides of the attempt to appropriate the vocabulary and categories given to him by Tillich? And what was Tillich doing on his own terms? I can't tell you as much about that. Right. (laughs) You're basically pushing the edges of my knowledge about the subject. I think one of the things that Tillich helped King maybe theorize or think about in a more sophisticated and academic way was the idea that theology is an answering theology, that the role and task of theology is to start with the questions of the day. Culture asks the questions, but not just 
culture in general, your specific social location will almost inevitably give rise to certain questions. And then theology seeks to answer, to step in. And that, of course, is one of the reasons why Tillich distanced himself from Bart, who wanted to start with the word. Now, you go to Scripture. Scripture gives us the questions and the answers. And Tillich, moving away from, from that neo-Orthodox tradition, wanted to say, no, our actual lived experience gives rise to questions. They just bubble up to the surface inevitably. African-American experience, you know, Walter Rauschenbusch, his experience in Hell's Kitchen. Tillich was a, a sort of theorist of this and helped theology take on a more apologetic mode, which I think is part of what you're going to be working on in, in terms of theodicy. In the 20th century, more and more theological language and discourse becomes about the problem of suffering. I hope to be able to look at that more in depth. I don't know if it would be possible for me to come back, but uh, my <laughs> fourth chapter of my dissertation will be dealing with King's engagement with Protestant realism more seriously. So at this point, I'm in the initial stages, and my first chapter has to do with King's cultural roots and his family roots and how they actually impacted his theodicy. The second chapter have to do with King's black church roots. In many ways, I just haven't done that research yet. The thing that makes King towering individual in American history is unlike Tillich, unlike Walter Rauschenbusch, unlike Dorothy Day, who's a, a Roman Catholic lay activist, King becomes this incredibly effective mobilizer. I mean, those Rauschenbusch, Tillich, Day, they were on the margins. And so King becomes this figure around which can unite and so has his legacy, I guess, in that respect. But maybe you could tell us a little bit about King's theology and then King's method, this famous saying, I, I learned my method from Gandhi. Yeah. Help us maybe understand nonviolence. You get death threats on the phone in the middle of the night. How do you respond? He puts a pot of coffee on and prays. This issue of nonviolence, King owned a firearm initially, at least initially, until Ralph Abernathy, one of his good friends, actually his best friend in Montgomery, questioned the appropriateness of owning a firearm given this nonviolent message that he had. King was committed to nonviolence because he was a Christian. Now, now, not passivity. This is important to say, and King repeatedly would say this through his life. He's not talking about a passive approach to oppression. It was nonviolent resistance to oppression. He saw love and he saw nonviolence as an actual power that could be turned toward oppression. So he had that kitchen experience. Three days later, his house was bombed. He was at the First Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, Ralph Abernathy's church, actually. He was speaking there, and his wife, Coretta, and their two-month-old daughter, Yolanda King, Yoki. Coretta, when she heard that happen, when she heard something hit the wall and fall on the front porch, she grabs Yoki, runs to the back of the house. Well, it turns out that it was a bomb, and that bomb exploded and destroyed the entire porch. And in fact, you hear the explosion from several blocks away. And word traveled quickly to First Baptist Church of Montgomery where King was speaking. So King, at the end of the service, King noticed that there's kind of a disturbance and people are sort of looking sideways. No one really wants to make eye contact with him. And he wonders what's going on. And so uh, Ralph Abernathy is the one that approaches King and tells him that your house has been bombed and we, we're just trying to get more details about it. So King, in a very sober, composed way, gets up before the congregation at First Baptist of Montgomery and he tells them that something has happened and that he needs to go. So he rushes back home when he gets home, 
he sees a crowd of reporters and these police officers and he sees a bunch of angry black citizens and he pushes his way past the crowd goes inside makes sure Coretta and Yoki are okay and they were praise the Lord and he returns back out onto the porch and when he comes back out on the porch he begins to address the crowd who he sees is a very very angry and he knows that they are really primed to really take vengeance and really riot based on what has happened to Dr. King. But what Dr. King says is that if you have firearms, please put them away. If you don't have any weapons, please don't seek them. Remember the words of Jesus. Love your enemies and pray for those who would persecute you. He says we must love our white brothers. We must make them know that we love them. And so when King begins to relate these words from the Sermon on the Mount, this crowd, he looks up and he notices that tears are in people's eyes. And people uh, realize that they couldn't respond in a violent way if they were really going to be committed to King Jesus. So King really, his commitment to nonviolence was fundamentally a Christian commitment. I mean, he would, he would address people at the initial, so the Montgomery Improvement Association was really the, the group out of which the Montgomery bus boycott sprang. And so King would address uh, mass meetings of this Montgomery Improvement Association. And when he would address at these meetings, he would begin by saying, we are Christian folk. He would continue to address the audience as Christian folk. This is a Christian response to our suffering. In his letter from Birmingham jail, King said that he was caught between multiple forces within the black community. There were those who were so dehumanized and had so much of a sense of self-hatred by oppression that they just willingly and passively accepted it. There were those who were enamored by materialism and were sort of alienated from the black masses and were not touched with these issues. And then there were those who, out of a sense of despair and anger and rage, had crept dangerously close to responding to oppression with violence. You can think of uh, maybe the black power movement and black nationalists, Nation of Islam, these kinds of folks. And so King is caught in between all of these responses to oppression. And, and what King wants to do is articulate a Christian response. We want to resist our oppression because our oppression is communicating a message that is fundamentally antithetical to the gospel. Our oppression gives us the impression that we are not fully human. And it gives our oppressors that impression as well. And so what we must do, in the words of 1 Peter, we must live as free people. We must live as free people. We must live as those who have been freed by the power of the gospel that realize that they're fully human, that there are people made in the image of God, and this is not God's intention for them. And we must live as exile. We must live as sojourners seeking to do good to the nation that God has placed us in. And the Christian message in this nation, one Christian message, is that God's intention for his people is not to live as second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. But anyway, this is a Christian response to suffering. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. There's so much more that we could all stand to know about King as a theologian and not just an American icon. Could you recommend some resources for Reformed pastors, seminarians? Where can we look to learn more about King and consider his message and work? I would direct anybody that wants to know about King to King's writings. Don't read books about King. Read King himself. I would recommend Stride Toward Freedom. Which is his, which is his memoir of the Montgomery bus boycott. 
And that actually became a kind of a standard reading for the civil rights movement. And also, the book that was written at near the end of his life was a book called Where Do We Go From Here, which is his memoir of the Birmingham protest movement. I would recommend those two books, Stride Toward Freedom, Where Do We Go From Here. I would also recommend uh, Testament of Hope, which is a compilation of sort of the essential writings and speeches of Dr. King. That's done by James Washington. And finally, if you have an extra $300, <laughs> you, could, you could invest in, in six volumes uh, of the King Papers Project, which was done by Claiborne Carson, who's a, a historian out at Stanford University. The King Papers Project is really the best compilation of King's writings. That's got everything from his early correspondences with his parent to his papers all throughout seminary to his comprehensive exams to speeches and, and sermons that he gave. And in a few more years, we'll have a remarkable dissertation by Mike Edmondson. <laughs> I don't know if I call it remarkable, but yeah, that, hopefully a dissertation by Mike Edmondson. We reformed our tenacious about faithfulness to the scriptures, fidelity to the confessions, orthodoxy from beginning to end. That's our great goal, and appropriately so. History of Reformed Theology is a, a history of doctrinal conflict, of trying to reform the church according to the word. But it seems to me maybe we don't know how to deal very well with the broader theological legacy and cultural legacy of someone like Dr. King because we would disagree with him on some points of theology. It almost becomes an occasion to subtly dismiss or undermine his importance as a preacher, as a theologian, because we would have doctrinal disagreements with us. So help us think about how to understand and engage someone like King and his legacy as Reformed Christians. We Christians really have a mandate to mourn with those who mourn. First Corinthians tells us that when one member suffers, we all suffer. The entire body suffers. And I think that if we really want to be good witnesses of this gospel that gathers people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, and we really want to be the community that God has called us to be in the midst of this world, that bears witness of the coming and the power of Christ through our unity with one another. We need to engage somebody like King because what King represents, again, is not just this isolated figure, but an entire community of Christians who have wondered, given the goodness of God, given the power of God, given the sovereignty of God, how do I make sense of my suffering? This is a Christian question. This problem that King is grappling with and which he answers through a redemptive suffering theodicy, this is a Christian issue. It's given my Christian faith. How do I understand this, faith-seeking understanding? So I would encourage folks within the Reformed community to really think hard about what the Lord is calling them to be in terms of a community that is united fundamentally around the gospel. And what is the Lord calling them to do in terms of being, being a witness to people that may not necessarily look like them or have the same experiences with them? And to have the kind of a empathy with their brothers in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, that will cause them to say, even though I don't, I might not understand what you have been through. I'm at least called by God to seek empathy and to suffer with you and to listen to you. And sometimes, you know, based on our political preferences or uh, whatever, whatever, based on perhaps even some personal implications, personal culpability, people are unwilling to suffer with those who suffer.
especially when they don't look like them and haven't a shared experience with them. How will it help the conservative, confessional, reformed churches in North America to reach the African-American community to get to grips with Dr. King? Can we achieve that mission of penetrating that community with the reformed faith without getting to grips with Dr. King? And is our suspicion of him, however warranted it may or may not be, part of the barrier that keeps us from reaching that community? Mm. Yes, in some ways, a suspicion of Dr. King could be a barrier because a suspicion of Dr. King is also a suspicion of the black church tradition because Dr. King is a product of the black church tradition. He's a product of the black community. If the black church, if it ever had a saint in the Catholic sense, (laughs) it would be Martin Luther King Jr. You have to be careful when you are rejecting him for the wrong reasons and you're doing it without seriously engaging him. I think that the Reformed community can create tremendous inroads within the African-American community and church by admitting the very rich theological tradition that is already there by not pathologizing them. So why is it that this guy that goes off to Crozier Seminary first in Boston University and sort of adopts a lot of liberal tendencies and and liberal theology, why is it that this guy is able to actually do his ministry within a conservative black context? It's because he's seriously engaging the questions that these people are engaging. That's why he was able to be the pastor of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. That's why he was able to be the co-pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church. He was able to do it because black people have refused to sort of make the separation between what I experience on Sunday morning and what I experience Monday through Saturday. And they see Dr. King as a person who also is not making that separation. And so that's why he's able to speak to their issues and it resonates with them. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.